senior firefighter is one of the most significant roles in the fire service. A member who carries this informal position can be a valuable source of experience, knowledge, and leadership. Often their actions dictate the level of success that members of a company will achieve both individually and as a whole. James McNamara is a dedicated member of the FDNY who embodies the true characteristics of a senior firefighter. Jim joined the FDNY in 1994 and eventually was assigned to Engine 37. Jim is a long-standing member of the Division III Safety Committee and a company and battalion delegate for the Uniformed Firefighters Association. He serves on the Strategic Committee for the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative and has developed the Operational Research Component in partnership with Columbia University. Jim also serves as a Human Performance Advisor for Leadership Under Fire. Keep in mind, he is a seasoned leader who others seek to emulate, even outside of the fire service. His passion for combining human factors science research and operational practice has far-reaching effects across various industries and endeavors. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Jim, it's so great to have you on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Thank you, Patty. Very nice to be here. Tell us about your early years and what your life was like growing up before you joined the FDNY. Sure. I grew up in Queens uh, within the confines of uh, St. Teresa's Parish. And if you were a child of the 70s or 80s in that time, your church defined your boundaries. Growing up uh, as a child in the 70s and going to public school in the 70s, uh, it was a difficult time in the city. You know, growing up in a neighborhood like that was, was a terrific experience. It was uh, primarily uh, Irish Catholic, and uh, we shared a lot of the same values. There was a tremendous amount of community in our neighborhood. People didn't have much at that time. Like when you looked at the, the clothes that the older kids were wearing, you would realize that eventually you, know, you were going to be wearing that yourself. Uh, we didn't have much, uh, but we had each other. And in very difficult times, uh, very strong bonds and relationships were built, and it was a terrific time and place in which to grow up. Uh, in my early years uh, in public school, to give you a sense of what the city was like back then, in my junior high school basketball team, guys would take guns to the game uh, <laughs> because of the environment in which we played. When I eventually went to Catholic school, I went to Christ the King, one of my teammates there, uh, Kevin Totten, lived in East New York. And uh, during our freshman season, he wanted me to come out and play with his uh, outside team, the Vanguard Oilers. And uh, when I proposed that uh, to my mother, whether I could play out there, uh, to say she was resistant would uh, would be an understatement, but I tried to uh, I tried to soften the blow by telling her that the coaching staff out there had guaranteed my safety to and from the train. Well, needless to say, she didn't really accept that. The world that we grew up in in the seventies and early eighties bears little to no resemblance of what life is like today in New York City. Uh, it was a difficult time, but it, it built character. It built tremendous character and tremendous relationships. And as I moved on from there, uh, after playing ball in, in Christ the King, uh, I went up to school in Maine. And needless to say, that was a tremendous culture shock. A kid growing up in, in New York City, uh, I mean, Maine was a beautiful country with absolutely terrific people. Uh, but it was real culture shock to me. And then after a couple of years, I came back down here when an opportunity arose with my future sister-in-law, uh, who opened up a business. And then I came back and then... Uh, did both work in school at LIU. And then while I was working with my sister-in-law, uh, I filed an application uh, for the fire department. I took the job 
and, and took the application, not really thinking that I would be a firefighter, but perhaps to use it as a conduit to something else. I thought that if I could work for, do both jobs for a couple of years and have public service on, uh, on my resume, that might increase my chances of getting into a really good law school. Well, needless to say, I finally get called in uh, January of 94, and uh, 25 years later, here we are. Uh, the FDNY was clearly the best thing that ever happened to me, and uh, a job and an experience um, that I relish every day. Wow, thank you for sharing all of that with us. So as you mentioned, you joined the FDNY in 1994, and you were assigned to Engine Company 37 on the west side of Harlem. Can you tell us about your experience as a young firefighter in the FDNY and what impact those early years had on you? Yeah. Uh, getting assigned to a place like 37 to 40 was an unbelievable opportunity. Uh, getting into Harlem those days was a very difficult task, uh, but having the opportunity to work with incredibly experienced firefighters and fire officers uh, was a gift that I, I cherish to this day. I mean, I had the opportunity to to work with legends, men like Jack Wren, Rudy Weinler, George Jose. Um, what you could learn from these men and their experiences uh, was absolutely invaluable. And the focus was just 100% completely on fires. That's all anyone ever talked about. Uh, and because the, the neighborhood, again, at that juncture, bared no resemblance to what it does now, there was just an enormous amount of vacant buildings which we could train on. And those combinations of having buildings to train on and, and, and senior and experienced offices was an opportunity I wish every firefighter could have. I've heard you speak previously about the iconic chiefs that were in the 16th Battalion during those years. Can you tell us a little bit about them and the influence that they've had on you and those around you? Sure. Uh, about 98 or so, uh, 69 and 28th quarters were being redone, and the units were dispersed uh, to different parts of Harlem. The 16th Battalion came down to us. And at that time, the 16th Battalion was staffed by absolute legends. Kennedy, Cassidy, Griffin, McKnight. I mean, I think Chief McKnight was the junior officer at the time, and I think he had like 32 or 33 years. Mm. These were absolutely the 27 Yankees, not just of the FDNY, but of this profession. And to have the opportunity to even just sit and listen to them as they told the stories and, and share their experiences was beyond invaluable. And I, what made them so unique was also that they were so approachable. Uh, that you could ask questions and they were willing to share their, their experiences and their knowledge. And I always tell the story of, of uh, Chief Bernie Cassidy. One night we'd come back from a job near City College and uh, it was a small job that eventually turned into something much larger and it was pretty chaotic. And upon return to quarters at about 3.30 in the morning, I asked him, I said, Chief, can I ask you a, just a question about the fire? He said, sure. I said, Chief, what were you thinking about you know, when you were approaching that box. And he said, come with me. And he takes me into the engine office, sits down, takes out a piece of paper, and begins to draw a schematic of the fire street and the fire buildings. And here he began to, to talk about the things. Well, I'm listening for reports on this person and that person. And he goes into this unbelievable description. And I was just standing there completely dumbfounded. I mean, this, this man was clearly playing chess, and, and I was just playing checkers. His ability to, to think this problem through well ahead of time, it was just astounding. And even more amazing was that a man of that stature, I mean, a legendary individual would take the time to talk to someone and explain things to someone like me, which really impacted me because as, as I went forward, 
I felt it was a mission to give what little I had to those who came after me. If men like Cassidy, Kennedy, Griffith, McKnight, if they could share their experiences, then somebody like me is, is, is required to do so. Interesting. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In the spring of 2001, you transferred to 58 and 26, also known as the Fire Factory, specifically Ladder 26, a firehouse and company steeped in tradition. What are the operational challenges in Harlem and what's unique about the culture of the firehouse? Well, getting the opportunity to work in a place like 26 Truck uh, was very unique. Uh, in those days, it was incredibly difficult to get to Harlem Truck Companies. There ended up being an opening, and I knew a few guys, and I, I took a chance, and I lucked out and, and got into the company. Uh, all of these companies in that area have tremendous histories, uh, but this is, is, is unique. You look at the folks who, who've, who've been in 26 Truck. You know, Patty Brown, O'Regan, and, and the modern day, Eddie Roberts, and now Captain Charlie Roberto. It's a tremendous opportunity, and the place just absolutely speaks of history. And you hope that when you get an opportunity to work there, uh, that you can, you can hold up that reputation. You know, having the opportunity to work in a company like that is, it's not an inherent right. It's a gift, and, and one that has been bestowed upon so very few. And every time you go out the door, you have all that history with you. You hope that 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 somehow, some way, you can you can carry that tradition. And uh, I hope uh, I hope that I've been able to do that. I think you have. In, in 2016, you were selected to attend the FDNY inaugural Mental Performance Initiative course in Palisades, New York, which is actually when we met. <laughs> what were your initial thoughts about mental performance when you were selected? <laughs> I'm so excited to go through this journey with you. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, uh, my battalion commander, Chief Ginty, had uh, offered the invitation. And when he offered it, I was like, mental what? Uh, <laughs> uh, I thought it, you know, it was going to be some kind of like self-help or yoga program. Uh, but I, I was willing to, to listen and, and, and had an open mind. So when we went up to Palisades, there were about 40 individuals selected to go in all ranks, which is uh, something the fire department historically hadn't done. Um, the week opened up with a, a young guy by the name of Jason Bresler. And I uh, gave his resume, you know, Naval Academy graduate, Marine officer, rescue two firefighter. Like, okay, it's pretty legit. And he opened up his, his talk by by challenging the room to to get out of the lane of comfort, to think differently. He talked about maneuver, tempo, friction, and I didn't understand anything that he said. And yet, I knew that this was a, a legitimate individual. And as the week commenced with an unbelievable lineup from, from Dave Grossman to Dr. Janet Metcalf uh, to Mike, Dr. Mike Askin to Dr. Fader, while I didn't initially grasp all of the concepts there, I knew that something very unique had occurred here. And I took my, uh, I took my signed copy of uh, On Combat and proceeded directly home and uh, plopped myself down in a chair and began a journey. One that I could have never envisioned uh, would take me to this place. I sat behind you at that conference, and to see where you've come from that time to now <laughs> is extraordinary. Is nothing short of extraordinary. Uh, there have been a considerable number of performance leaders in the FDNY 
of all ranks, as you mentioned, who have been actively involved in the initiative. But it's safe to say that none have been more fervent or perhaps the word is rigorous than you. What is it about mental and human performance and human factor science that motivates you to invest so much time and energy into efforts with the FDNY and leadership under fire? Well, first, it's, it's the challenge. Uh, I had considered myself to be something of a student of the game. And the fact that I didn't know this, um, it really bothered me. Uh, and as I began to, to dig into this, it became readily apparent that this was the opportunity uh, to fundamentally improve our people. In the fire service and especially in the FDNY, we have always attracted great people and we still do. But this is an opportunity to fundly, fundamentally improve these amazing men and women. And again, to do so all in furtherance of our ultimate goal, which is to save lives. So then how has embracing these things, human and mental performance, shaped you both professionally and then personally? Sure. When you talk about improving performance, uh, look at a tactical element. I mean, how many new ways are we going to find to force a door? Well, we'll probably come up with a few, but the increases at best will be nominal. But if we really want to improve performance, if we can give that individual firefighter, that operator, an understanding of the forces that are being applied to him, provide him with some tools and techniques to manage these forces, we can fundamentally improve that ability to operate. Because what good is it to possess a skill if we're unable to call up that skill during periods of ever-increasing stress? I'm looking for a twofold answer here, and I'm really excited to hear the response. What is your daily routine like? Can you walk us through what it's like at home? And then I know a lot of our listeners want to know what it's like at the firehouse. <laughs> well, since I've become involved in this, uh, I've certainly become more focused uh, because I think the challenge is, is simply that great. Uh, I, I had always been someone who tried to keep up and, and read well, um, but the focus now is, is becoming almost time-consuming because I don't have a lot of time left uh, in this job. The end is coming and coming quite near. So for me, in, in a perfect situation, if I could start the day at, 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 at 6 o'clock or so, knock down a couple of emails or minor work, and then get into something uh, – to get into some good reading, if I can grab five or six hours in the morning, that starts as a really – that's setting my day off to a really good start. And then – Can we just reinforce that? Five to six hours. Sure. Got it. Sure. And it's never enough because, again, to me, um, time is the enemy for me. I don't have a lot left in this. And the hope with this more than anything else is I, I view this – my small contribution is that this is about building the structures and mechanisms through which future generations will pass, the structures and mechanisms that will allow future generations to thrive. And again, as someone on the back end of their career – I can think of no greater gift to leave behind. And at work, um, I've tried to change the routine as I've begun to understand what is necessary. We're challenged in the FDNY with exploding run totals. And these activity levels combined with increasing administrative duties, they don't leave a lot of time to train. And when you compound that with the, the increasing span, scope, and complexity of responsibility – this is a real challenge. So what I like to do is if we can build a structure where it's just conditioned that after we finish our committee work, uh, the rig goes out. And not only does it get washed, everybody that, we, that we're working on the area, working on some tools, 
and hands-on stuff, prioritizing the things that, that, are, that are most likely going to challenge us, and then looking to, to grab time wherever possible. Um, and that's a challenge indeed, but if we can spot it two or three times during a uh, part of each tour, then we've accomplished something. And then for me, if things kind of quiet down around midnight or so, then that's an opportunity maybe for me to do another two or three hours if I can do something. Uh, I would like to go a little longer, but since listening and learning from uh, Dr. Belisa and Jimmy Lopez, uh, the need to try and rest wherever possible and the benefits of recovery, I've tried to incorporate uh, a lot of their teachings uh, into what I do. Ed Reinfurt from the McChrystal Group has said oftentimes we sacrifice the important for the immediate. And it seems like you've really tried to find a balance there. Yes, because I, I think the challenge for our young, our young guys and gals today is that great. Uh, no generation in history has ever been challenged the way they are. We expect them to handle anything from a fire to a medical emergency to a chemical or biological attack to a, an active shooter situation. I mean, who would have ever thought that firefighters would be donning uh, Kevlar helmets and bulletproof vests? And, and with all these responsibilities, th there needs to be a corresponding increase in the time allocated to train. We cannot be the, the, the jack of all trades. And by trying to do that, we end up becoming the masters of none. So we've established that you're the most voracious reader on the team. What is your approach to reading and professional development? Well, I, I try to – I at first just tried to jump into the genre, if you will. Um, but since being involved with Dr. Janet Metcalf um, and her team, trying to get a, a deeper understanding of the things that we're engaged in. Uh, memory is her specialty. So trying to taper the reading to get a better understanding of the things that she works on. Uh, and, and that's really – it's been a little problematic because I, I'd like to adhere to some of the things that like General Mattis and McChrystal talk about, about broadening. Uh, but again, it's a time consideration. I've been tasked with trying to to go down this road. And uh, so the majority of time is, is, is digging through things and things that are very difficult for me to grasp. I'm not an academic. I'm just a simple fireman. Mm -hmm. uh, but with enough time and effort, hopefully uh, the groundwork will be laid. But you're, you're bridging that gap. Right. You're taking these concepts and applying them. Sure. Sure. Um, and they do apply to both personal and professional life because these skills that we're, that we're teaching folks are not work skills. They're life skills. Because if you want to execute them in the moment of truth at 3 o'clock in the morning, you've, you have to practice them day in and day out. That's the only way we'll be able to call these things up. Um, so, But also the, the importance of, of, of reading. If there's one thing that is – astounded me is the manner in which our folks uh, in the FDNY are broadening. I mean, they cannot get enough to read. They are beyond impressive. And uh, it is also competition. <laughs> While nobody will say it publicly, our people are ultra competitive and because they want to be better than the next guy. And that having people like that fosters growth and it accounts for it's why we're the organization we are. So then how do you see mental performance benefiting the fire service at large and where do you see the greater, greatest opportunities are in terms of impact? Sure. There are, there are multiple benefits. It's first and foremost about our ability uh, to execute our task in an environment for which we have little to no understanding. But also improving our skill sets to improve our chances of, of, of saving life with, and with a secondary benefit 
of helping our own people to stay alive. We understand what the goal is. Goal one are, are the civilians and the, and the people we're deemed to protect. And, and goal two, we can derive a secondary benefit out of this uh, to help ourselves. Um, ultimately, this will change the profession. Um, it'll change the profession. And when we begin to understand exactly the impacts upon our people, um, both physically, mentally, and also cumulatively, um, the, the results will be jaw-dropping. Exciting. You've been a very active union delegate. There is a contentious debate in much of America right now about organized labor and perhaps even a trend away from organized labor that's connected to a belief that organized labor hinders performance. You're obviously a huge proponent of optimizing human performance and organized labor. How do you view the two as being mutually supportive? Sure. In much of my time on the job, the, the prevailing wisdom from government has been, we'll do more with less. Well, there are consequences for that. Um, we're pushing people to a limit. And for unions, unions are – the primary goal is, is to protect the members. But there's, there's a mutual benefit with, with the citizens as well. We're able to identify uh, situations and items that elected officials most often won't understand. And – what we ask for are, are items that will help us to, to do our job. And if unions had an understanding of how their members were being impacted, both physically and mentally, and, and, and were able to provide quantifiable data, well, that changes the, the, the complexion of, of negotiations. It changes the complexion of budgets. But again, it's one thing to say that your job is, is physically demanding or mentally taxing. It's quite another to have the quantifiable data to prove it. And when that happens, you change the complexion on staffing levels and activity levels and even responsibilities. The idea of turning the fire service into this all-encompassing agency of last resort that handles all the problems that government doesn't want to handle, whether it's collapsing infrastructure, collapsing housing, or the, the, the expansion of EMS and, and the problems there. When folks don't have medical insurance, they turn to EMS, which jacks up the runs for our medics and, and, and EMTs and also our engines. You know, identifying these problems and, and understanding the back-ended damage will go a long way in helping unions. I'm sure that response has just planted a seed for fiery debate and conversation among some of our listeners? Well, I, I hope so. Uh, again, at the end of the day, um, unions not only work to, for the membership, but uh, their benefits and, and their goals many times are exactly what, uh, what citizens. We're citizens as well. Mm -hmm. I live in the city. And now uh, in, in today's fire department, the majority of our people do. So when we're talking about issues that affect service, it's affecting me not only as a firefighter, but as a taxpaying citizen. I want to talk to you about millennials in the workplace. As a senior firefighter, what is your view on the generational differences today, and are there any gaps that need to be addressed? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad this came up because my, uh, my opinion has evolved over time. This idea that well, generations are different, that's been going on forever. And, and many of the same arguments were, were put forth when, when I came on the job, my generation. Well, you guys weren't in the trades. You went to school. All right. So what? The point is you were willing to do the job. You had the, the aptitude and the ability to learn. But this idea that, that today's young, these post-9-11 kids don't have it in them. Well, we're doing this interview just a few blocks from the old trade center. 
And in the aftermath of, of that tragic September morning, during the rescue and recovery efforts, many of us would, would, would take time and, and, and talk and say, who is going to take this job? Who would dare allow their son or daughter to come into this horror that we are now embracing? Who would ever do it? And yet they came. This generation came and answered the call. A few years after 9-11, the city of New York cut the starting salary of probationary firefighters to $25,000 a year. $25,000 a year in New York City. And they still came. In the immediate aftermath of of 9-11 also, that same generation stepped forward, raised their right hands, and said, I'll bring justice to those who did this. And they did. And they fought two of the longest wars in American history and paid an unbelievable price. They're still paying that price today. We recently buried firefighter Christopher Slutman from Ladder 27. Chris Slutman was firefighter, Marine, patriot, and he died on the field of battle almost 19 years after what happened just down the block from where I'm sitting. So I'm not really, I don't want to hear any of this, millennials of this, millennials of that. This generation has paid an unbelievable price. It is up to us to understand them and to bring them along. We cannot paint an entire generation by the actions of a few. Let's look at the Christopher Slutmans of the world, the Christian Ingeldrums of the world, and say thank you, and say where do we find these people? And on that, as a senior man, what are traits and attributes that you value the most in probationary firefighters? Just the willingness the willingness to learn and to have heart. Uh, Jack Corcoran, former lieutenant in 26 and a captain of Rescue 4, once told me, he said, he said, 95% of this job is heart. We can teach you the rest. And, uh, and Captain Jack was right. And I might note that we lost Captain Jack as a result of what happened just a short distance from here. But his words ring true today. We can teach you. You provide us the heart, we'll do the rest. So then with fewer fires to learn and develop from, what methods do you find the younger generation of firefighters respond to in terms of vocational development? Yeah, this is where we, we were very lucky in that we kind of backed into this. Um, I had brought a computer to work since as long as I can remember. And when we had the original bulky laptops um, – we would play uh, videos of fire activities. And maybe 10-plus years ago, there were sites where you could buy these things, and we would watch them. And, and we watched them as a version of game film. But as time moved on, uh, as the YouTubes of the world and now um, the Citizen apps, this gives us a, an ability to basically build slides, to build a slide deck of understanding. <laughs> What we've learned from the, from the psychologists is that 
part of what drives that human fear response is when we see a situation and we don't have an answer for it, when the mind doesn't have an answer, then you start activating that fear response. Then you have that hot, cool battle within, within, within one's mind. So what we do is, is we spend a tremendous amount of time either with Google Earth uh, or watching videos. And I like to tell a story of, of one particular young man that we had, uh, Chris Conklin. Chris was a great student, um, had great heart. And he would spend a tremendous amount of time watching videos. And he was in a situation, his first time that he was on a, on a fire escape in a difficult situation was a multiple alarm fire on 116th Street. Fire ended up being out of five windows. But he was on that fire escape, did all the things that we taught him to do as a, as a job. But when, when the windows started to be taken, he was able to realize that the smoke condition was about to light up. And he took the appropriate move to drop down for a second to get out of the way of that. That was the first time that he was ever on a fire escape in a difficult situation. And the preparation that he engaged in on the front end, having those slides in his head, told him that the situation was about to go bad. I mean, that's a perfect example. Like the phrase now that we, we like to use is that outcomes are largely determined before the event. Right? The amount of preparation we do on the front end and the amount of reflection we do on the back end will allow us to, to execute and to be, as Dr. Fader would say, in the moment. And that's a perfect example of using technology to be in the moment. We can take advantage of the technology that they use which is part of this responsibility that we need to understand them better, understand the ways that they gain, the way that they access information, and use those tools. I mean, they have every capability to learn. You know, it's, it's our responsibility to understand them, and, and we'll do that. And when we do, we'll make them even more effective because technology allows us almost to create that, that realistic situation. One of the things that, that, that Fader would talk about is you know you know tactical performance imagery that if you have that visual image in your head, and that if you're running that scene over and over again, utilizing the full spectrum of senses, and by running it over and over in such a manner, in very short time your mind can't tell the difference between practice and reality. So th this generation hasn't hasn't the opportunity at least to use technology to help close the gap. There's no such thing. There's no better thing than actually doing it. But technology can go a long way towards closing that gap. And we need to do a better job of understanding that and employing that. Earlier in this episode, you touched upon how you approached senior members of your firehouse when you were a young firefighter. Can you provide some examples or insight into how the officers and members of a unit gainfully employ a senior firefighter? Sure. Every company will, will, will have a different approach. Um, we're extremely blessed uh, we've had the same captain, Captain Charlie Roberto, the entire time. We like to joke that he actually started the fire department. Uh, but when you have that, that continuity of leadership, uh, it allows uh, for a chain of command to be established. And when folks know their roles, it makes it easier on him. Um, and the way we like to do it uh, is that the, the senior people should lead the training evolutions doesn't mean the officers will contribute, but it's, it's oftentimes a lot easier for young guys to train with other firefighters because they feel more at ease. They feel they can talk. They can express themselves. And what the, what the captain will do is that he'll, from time to time, he'll identify areas that we need to hit. If he sees something that's not to his liking, he'll just simply say, hey, we need to hit you know, A or B, and we'll do so. 
Um, different companies will do different things. We've been remarkably blessed. Uh, we have great young guys. Like, I mean, knock wood. It's just it's it's an absolute privilege, and they uh, they make it very re- rewarding to come to work. Um, all that they have done, uh, you know, in the, in the past few years. I mean, no generation of our job has ever done what they've done. Exploding run totals at the same time in bunker gear with 45-minute bottles with the PSS. And then we just went through a period, a five- to six-year period, where they're averaging almost 500 hours of overtime a year. These guys are absolutely amazing. And that they were able to to maintain a, a level of unit cohesion and spree decor and still have fun, it's a tribute to them. And we don't give them enough credit. We don't tell them how good they really are. And they are terrific. Mm-hmm. So what are some traits and attributes you value the most in a leader? I'm really interested to hear this answer. More than anything else, um, do you care about the men and women in your charge? Um, and if you have that, if you and, – and in the fire service, you really can't use the word love. But uh, look, you, you've got to love the people you work with. Um, and, they, and that's what allows us to do the things that, that we do. So if, if the leader has, you know, really loves his men, uh, we're in good shape. That sets the tone right from the start because people will want to work and want to give it everything they have. Uh, the trust is, is something that you want to have. Uh, and if you have those basic things, we're on the same page. You know, we can, we can take it from there. But having that, you know, that you care about the men uh, and women now, of course, Patty. Yep, I'm just <laughs> – and also that uh, – well, I would also I would also point out in, in my firehouse, we had Susan Blake. And Susan Blake was terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, we – you know, her career was cut short due to, due to what happened on that September morning. Um, but if, if, if it comes from the top that, that you know, that you value your, your men um, and that you, you, you set the pace, set the tone, we'll take it from there. So you're touching on mission-oriented leadership, I would say. And the senior firefighter is viewed as having an instrumental role in communicating up and down the chain of command, largely being a conduit between the officers and the firefighters in your company who are your peers but possess less time and experience. What are the challenges that come with this role and where are the greatest opportunities for impact? Well, the challenges are you're balancing um, – what a battalion or, or a division might want with what your men believe is correct. And it's a bit of a dance. But if you have some time on the job, uh, then chief officers are willing certainly to listen to all the things that you, you want to bring to the table. You, you have the ability uh, to speak freely with them and address the concerns that, that your guys have. Uh, it is a balancing act. Uh, but again, we're quite fortunate um, with the people that we have. Um, they are focused in what they do. So it's a lot easier than in, than in some other places or in some other organizations. So it, it's, it's a balancing act, which is oftentimes not as hard as it, it's, some people would make it out to be. Uh, we're very fortunate where we work um, and that the relationships are solid up and down the chain. And that makes it – that makes for very, uh, a very enjoyable work, work atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I could imagine if it, if there are challenges staying connected to that why and the mission and falling back on the fact that you care and you have trust is what will 
help you overcome any bumps in the road? Sure. And and the leaders above us uh, historically have always kind of filtered away the nonsense just to keep the guys focused on what they have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that has always been a trait of, of those guys, again, who who came out of the war years and, and those who, who, who did the work. Um, they knew what was important. They also knew how to deflect things and to keep it from, from getting to the troops. That's, that's real leadership. Mm. And keeping, by doing so, you, also, you allow the troops to remain focused. And that's a very important task. It's harder to do today, uh, but it is still um, a critical part of uh, upper command leadership. Yeah. So speaking of over the course of your career, what are some of the biggest changes that you and those you work with have navigated at the FDNY and how have you personally adapted to these changes? Sure. I mean, I uh, I was hired on this job when we wore blue jeans. And to watch in the next 25 years the, the bunker gear, 45-minute bottles, the PSS, um, that has made even just day-to-day operations incredibly difficult. But we – we were given those items in response to tragedies with the best of intentions and something that I'd have to stress over and over again. We were given these items with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. But absent an understanding of human factors, we've never really identified uh, the negative downside impacts of, 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 of this gear, let alone when you combine that with the explosion in activity levels that has occurred post 9-11. Um, what we are wearing was never geared for people with the activity levels that we have in a city as vertical as we are. And so that that's a very difficult thing. And also on, on the day-to-day training evolutions. I mean, if you looked at a, a training triad, if say we built that, you had Proby School, and Tactical Out at the Rock, and then day-to-day operations. Uh, Proby School and, and Tactical at the Rock have been improved greatly. There's no resemblance to what what it was when I was there. But it's the day-to-day training opportunities and the, the, the absence thereof that has made it really challenging. You can't have a, you know, an exponential increase in span and scope of responsibility and not have that corresponding increase in training. We can't just simply thrust more and more responsibilities onto our, our guys and gals and not think that it's going to impact preparedness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real issue. And look, there are competing demands here. Um, if, if city government wants us to do certain things, we're, we're obligated to do so. But we need at least to identify that there is a significant downside risk. So then how do you adapt? Well, you, you prioritize. Um, you know, again, it, it, you prioritize the things that you're working on. You, 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 you focus on, on the things that pose the greatest risk. And it doesn't allow you to hit every uh, every tool and every every piece of equipment as much as you'd like, but you have to prioritize. You know, if you're given an opportunity to talk about either the hearse tool or operations at the fire door or the floor above, well, I'll tell you exactly where we're focusing. And if we stay focused to the fundamentals, well, we should be able to to, to operate in those environments that are a little less demanding. But you know, staying. Staying focused on again what our primary mission is, right? It's about fire, um, and and being you know where are we most injured in, in these kinds of situations? If we're focused there, mm-hmm. uh, again, 
it, it's it's difficult that we're not hitting all the other areas as hard as we would like, mm-hmm. but there is only so much time in a day. <laughs> and again, we try to maximize our time to the best of our abilities. It is beyond challenging. Right. To dive a little bit deeper into that, what aspects of the job do you see as being timeless? The kitchen table. Um, and that's something, unless you've done this, uh, you have no idea what that phrase means. We're not talking about a piece of furniture that sits in a room. Um, it is the heart and the soul of, uh, of what we are. And we are nothing without it. Um, it was interesting at one point we, we had the opportunity to uh, spend time with Sebastian Junger. And he talked about his experiences in the Cornwall. And he's done some a couple of TED Talks on why the soldiers miss war. Uh, Tribe was a great book. But at the end of the day, it's when you're part of something together, um, there's nothing like it. I mean, it, it really brings out the very best in, in human beings when they're focused on a single mission, when they have that connection together. When you care about those people that you're working with, it's not a job. It's it's a mission. It's a calling. Uh, and the kitchen is, is where you begin to foster that. There is no television in the kitchen of 58 and 26. and never will be. Um, things like preparing a meal and eating a meal, this is about family because this is your family. And and also the other aspect of, of the table is, look, uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the table saved us. I don't know if, if, if many of us would have made it through that without the kitchen table. Having someone... Having like-minded people talking about these things, to have someone you can talk to who understands you. So few people understand what it is we do, what it is we see, what it is we overcome. Having that support is enormous. And now, you know, the science is starting to catch up to that. You know, there was a time when you say, well, if if you had a difficult experience, well, maybe you should take time off and take a blow. Well, actually, that might be counterproductive. Putting people in isolation to, to, you know, to fester. No, when, when you're back in that kitchen, back in the routine, back with people you care about, that's going to help you get over, you know, the incredibly difficult things that you see and do on a daily basis. Um, it is the, the pure essence of this job, and we are nothing without it. The senior man is largely tasked with keeping order in the firehouse and maintaining a moral and ethical compass for the membership what challenges have you faced in regard to this, and how have you overcome? A lot of challenges in overcoming for, for you. Well, not, not really. I mean, where, where I work, um, it, it's a very special place. And um, so a lot of these things, you know, the, keeping order is not something that's really needed. Uh, we, we're very fortunate enough to have uh, a terrific bunch of, of young guys. The challenge is in the wake of these expanding run totals and, and all of these distractions, which is probably the best way to describe it, how do you keep the troops focused on what we, we need to do? And that's a real challenge um, because when they're pushed you know, to their physical limits, when, when, you know, and especially a lot of our young guys now, they're at the age where they're starting to have kids. They don't sleep mm-hmm. at all. Um, so trying to keep the focus there – Understanding what they're going through, um, that's – and to be helpful. Also, to let them know that I'm just a fireman like you, nothing more, that we're in this together, that there's no mistake that you'll make that I haven't already done. 
that we can learn. And at the ultimate, the end of the day, it's about learning. It's about getting better. Because there is no end point, you know, in, in our profession. There is never a point in time where, where you've learned all there is to do and you, you can go. The great ones will tell you when you think you've learned it all, you should hang it up because now you're a danger. Um, it is absolutely imperative for today's firefighters to become lifelong learners. The challenges just continue to escalate. Uh, the challenges that they have now might be nothing compared to what they see 10 years from now. Trying to convey to them the urgency of, 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 the, of the moment. Trying also to convey the history. That's a, that's a big thing. In the, in the FDNY now, there are about 8,500 firefighters. Less than 600 of us are pre-911 people. Who tells the stories? You know, who conveys? You know, who conveys the stories from people like Kennedy, Cassidy, Griffin, McKnight? You know, who conveys the stories? Of, you know, of the people that we worked with, of the, of the Eddie Roberts, uh, and who also conveys the stories of what happened on that September morning? Uh, when we go, a lot of that, you know, may die with us, and it's it's just so important. Because there has to be that connection, that continuity, um, because you learn from history. All I have to say is I'm so grateful to have this historical record now sitting here speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing this. I know that we're going to have you on again and dive a little bit deeper into the human performance aspect of the Leadership Under Fire Endeavor and the MPI Endeavor. So thank you for being here today and sharing this much. Thank you, Patty. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Conway Shield is one of the few companies led by a president who has saved a life at the threat of his own. Paul Conway serves with a relentless firefighter mentality like his brother and father before him. Founded in 1985, Conway Shield manufactures America's finest helmet shields while arming firefighters and law enforcers with products Paul Conway himself would trust in the line of fire. Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast listeners can receive a 10% discount site-wide using the code LUF more at conwayshield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.